This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Hi everyone, I'm Jane Tara and I'm chatting to authors and experts about their self-help, wellness and personal development books. If you're looking for ways to be happy, be well and be inspired, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Better Reading B. Melissa Levi is a clinical psychologist specialising in older people's mental health and dementia. With over a decade of experience at St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, Melissa has helped more than a thousand older people and their families navigate the ageing journey. She also lectures for the Master of Clinical Psychology program at the University of Technology, Sydney, and is co-author of the St Vincent's Hospital Handbook of Clinical Psychogeriatrics. She has now written We Need to Talk About Ageing, which is a comprehensive guide that will empower your family to navigate the ageing journey with confidence and hope. Melissa Levi, welcome to Be Better. Jean, thank you so much for having me. Oh, look, it is such a great read. It really, and it really is a great read. I think there's a lot of buzz around embracing aging and talking about aging, but we're actually talking about sort of being in your 50s and 60s then, and we're still not really discussing, um, you know, our age, like aging process, when we're older, when we're in our 80s or 90s or what it means to age or setting in place plans for aging. And you've written the perfect book that absolutely covers everything, everything in it. So for anyone out there who has uh, older parents, older family members, or wants to get a little bit organized themselves, it really is a great read, Melissa. Oh, thank you, Jane. You know, I think you sort of, you write these books in a bit of a vacuum and it's just so lovely to know, you know, this book was written with a very clear purpose and like a mission to really help families better navigate that aging journey. So it's just, it's so lovely to sort of put it out into the world and and really hope that it achieves its its purpose. And it, it was funny when you said, you know, it sort of covers everything. I just remember the emails back and forth with my editor saying, oh, I want to add in another chapter on this and I want to add in another chapter on that and the sort of word count grew and grew and eventually we sort of reined it into something that was still manageable for families. Well I think it is great it has an amazing arc a really great structure to the book and also I went into it thinking with your background that it might be sort of a medical book in many ways and while it does cover what it needs to cover medically. It also talks about the emotional journey, practical journey that we all go on, uh, either when we're dealing with someone who is aging in our family or ourselves as well. And, um, And that's what makes this book really, really special, I think. And I'm actually going to give both of my parents a copy. 
<laughs> I'm delighted to hear that. I'm, and, and that was my intention. So we had written the um, St. Vincent's Hospital Handbook of Clinical Psychogeriatrics, which is a big mouthful. Yes. <laughs> um, and is a read for um, medical professionals. Mm. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, gosh, I wish there was something like this, this sort of comprehensive guide, but that was a lot more sort of accessible, easy to read, really practical for families. And then of course, and, and I suspect we'll probably touch on this, you know, my, my Zeta, my grandfather was diagnosed with dementia just as I was starting my career. And this book is very much, you know, a, what I wish my family had had at the beginning of our journey. So all these years later, I was still looking for that very book, couldn't find one and thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to write it. Mm, and, and that's where you write a lot about your journey with um, Zayda. Is that how it's pronounced? Your yes, grandmother? that's how I pronounced yeah. it. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And it adds a really personal touch to this uh, book as well. You write that with your grandfather's journey with dementia, that the five or so years of my Zayda's dementia were marked by grief, profound sadness, denial, longing, and frustration. They were also years of hope, joy, laughter, and most of all, insight and growth. To experience the aging process on a personal level was perhaps the greatest professional education I have received to date. Yeah. So talk to me about how that did impact your work. Yes. So when, like I said, you know, before, when my Zeta was diagnosed with dementia, I was just starting my career in older people's mental health and dementia. So I didn't have any of the knowledge or experience that I have today. And there were a few key things that I learned from walking that journey. I think one of them was the difference between sympathy and empathy. Mm. Um, and I think as a, as a psychologist, you know, I would really try to put myself in the shoes of the families that I was working with and really understand their experience. And it, it came from a very good place, but in hindsight, I recognized that was very much sympathy, sort of feeling for them, maybe rather than with them, but having walked the journey myself, oh my gosh, I just think you just get it. You just understand just how difficult it can be. Um, just how, you know, emotionally, um, sort of devastating and, you know, it's this sort of roller coaster and, and how relentless it can feel at times. And so now when I meet with families, I think I'm able to sort of tap in a lot more to that empathy. Mm, um, and I think that space, creates connection. It? It's a different yeah. space. It yeah. is a different space. Um, it's, it's the difference, I think, between imagining something, you know, imagining what it's like to experience something versus really knowing it in your bones. Another huge thing that I learned, and, and this is also, you know, a, was a huge catalyst for the book, was the importance of having conversations about aging early with mom, dad, or our aging loved ones. I think my family was like most families. We didn't talk about aging or death. Um, I think we really just didn't know how to. Mm. Um, but this led to a lot of overwhelm, a lot of confusion. It certainly put strain on family relationships. Relationships and and also, you know, it compromised my Zeta's care at times. Mm. Um, so now when a family comes to me, one of the first things I do is try to align and unite the family. So sit down with them and support them to have some of these big conversations about, you know, mum or dad's wishes for medical treatment or care or accommodation or finances and 
allow them to sort of understand some different potential scenarios that could play out along the journey, you know, empower them to know what to expect. Mm. That can alleviate a lot of anxiety and fear. Then to really know their options. And the beautiful thing about having these conversations early is that families are often really surprised by how many choices and options do exist, Mm. um, especially if you're sort of forward planning and just how helping them as a family to put a really clear plan in place so that mum or dad can age and even die in a way that is most consistent with their wishes. That's right. And it's about their wishes. If you get in there early and have this conversation, reading your book, I realised that I, so my parents are divorced, but both are in their 80s and incredibly healthy. My father travels around Australia as a grey nomad in his 80s. So yeah, so he's living his life like that. My mother is involved in so many charities and she does line dancing. She does mahjong and she's, you know, she's very, very busy and has a very active, full life. But what I realized when I was reading your book is that both of them in different ways, anytime the aging, like aging, I mean, they're in their 80s, but aging conversation comes up or um, death conversation comes up, I brush it off. Yeah, I make a joke. I don't don't talk to them about it. And my mother was a palliative care nurse. So my mother has everything in place. She downsized to a retirement village. She uh, got rid of everything because she just said everyone throws you know, people's stuff in a skip anyway. So she minimized, she has everything very organized, her whole end of life thing. And she's tried to talk to me a couple of times about it. And I go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Next time we'll we'll do that next time. What I realized is rather than it being an uncomfortable conversation, reading your book, I realized it's actually a very empowering conversation for them. And I need to have it with my mother to empower her. So that's not taken along late, taken away from her later on. And I love that you've mentioned that, Jane, because, well, firstly, I imagine your mum's probably seen this play out as a palliative care Mm. nurse in terms of, you know, those that sort of, you know, have made their wishes clearly known um, and have maybe even documented them and versus, you know, families who are in a position of making some really big decisions for someone they love without that sort of map or that guide. Um, and it's, I, f- I find that these conversations, you know, it's a funny thing. We're really daunted by them because they feel really scary. And in fairness, no one's ever taught us how to have these conversations. So no one's taught us the questions to ask, how to broach the topic, you know, what to talk about. So, you know, these conversations feel hard because they are hard when we're not supported. And I guess that's sort of the gap that I'm trying to address in the book and in the work that I'm doing. But I've also found that these conversations become a mutual gift, Mm. that it is a gift of empowerment to your loved one so that they can age and die in a way that is consistent with their deepest sort of wishes and values. But it is also a gift to us. So Jane, to yourself as well, because Mm. It means that if you're ever in a position that you need to navigate some complex decisions, you can have the peace of mind and the clarity and the confidence to know that you're doing the right thing by your mum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I, 
I find it also often affords people a bit of a bit of resilience in their grief as well, sort of mm. after the fact, you mm. know. Mm. Um, so and this these- is what I love about the book too: is that you really lay it out. It is like a guide on all the different ways that you can approach these things that you know that you touch on throughout the book um, and that you write about. Uh, look, one of the chapters early on is what's normal aging, and I love that you've broken this down to three aging trajectories that you use. There's successful aging, normal aging, compromised aging. And <laughs> you just before that, you write, before changing our name to Older People's Mental Health Service, my department was known as the Psychogeriatric Service. On more than one occasion, I would call a new patient, introduce myself only to be told, darling, I'm neither psycho nor g- a geriatric. So fair enough, I still routinely see patients in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s who object to the fact that they're being seen by a service for old people. So I really love this. Normal aging, normal aging, I I guess, does fall into three, these three trajectories that you talk about. Can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the questions that I'm asked so often is, is this normal? And it seems like a really simple question, but often it doesn't have a simple an answer. And, you know, while it can get quite complex and there's a lot of debate, you know, amongst doctors and scientists, I just find that breaking it down into these three trajectories, it's, you know, a bit of a broad brush approach, but I think it gives families clarity about what they can expect moving forward. So the first trajectory that I think of is successful aging. So these are people who perhaps sort of surpass our expectations of what the majority of people experience at a particular age. So um, these are people who, as they've gotten older, have shown sort of very limited or even no change in their health. Um, And they're still able to live a life that is consistent with their values. They're able to do the things that matter to them, that bring them joy without sort of much modification, really. So it sounds um, like my mother, actually. I was just about to say, it sounds like your mom and possibly even your dad. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Traveling around Australia. But I, I do, I think of people like your parents. I think of people like, you know, the late sort of Queen Elizabeth who is, you know, possibly the only person to look stylish in a lime green twin set. I don't know if that's a marker of successful aging. Um, I think think, so. (laughs) I I think of people even like my own grandmother, who is my grandmother-in-law, but I've adopted her as my own. So she was legally blind for almost all of her life and then had sort of, you know, life-changing eye surgery in her 70s. Wow. And it was the renaissance of her life. So she is now 94. She has published three books, um, the last of which was released on her 90th birthday. She uh, joined. You'll have to give me the name of those groups. Yeah, (laughs) I will. You could interview her for your podcast. Yeah, maybe I can. Yeah, (laughs) she does line dancing. dancing. Yeah, Yeah, she. You know, she joined to um, go and write down people's memoirs as part of a sort of you know like um, aging palliative care service. Like, she is just the most remarkable, um, Mm. you know, successful ager. And I think this is, you know, often what we aspire to. And when we talk about sort of, you know, um, 
put, implementing strategies, you know, for healthy aging. This is what we're looking towards. The next trajectory that I think of is what I've come to call normal aging. And really that speaks to what the majority of the older people I see tend to experience. So these are sort of really normal changes. So, you know, maybe some subtle changes in balance and mobility. So, you know, you're not quite as steady on your feet, but you're not necessarily having regular falls. Or maybe your thinking is not as lightning fast as it once was, but you're still able to function completely independently day to day. And these are people who are still able to live lives where they're able to access meaning and joy and do the things they want to do, but maybe they need some slight degree of modification. Mm -hmm. So, One example could be, you know, I had a patient who said to me, you know, I had a previously impeccable memory. I never kept a diary or a calendar and I never missed an appointment. I used to go to the shops and buy everything I needed. So, I mean, I'm in my 30s. I can't do that. Yeah, I can't. (laughs) I've never been able to do that. So (laughs) I can't do that. But, But he very much could. And so for him, sort of normal aging was that he noticed his memory was not quite as pristine, but with the assistance of, you know, a calendar on his iPhone, no less, um, and a bit of a shopping list, was able to keep doing doing those things completely independently. Mm. Um, or it could be, you know, that perhaps they're no longer driving, but they're still able to get, you know, out and about and go to social activities and, you know, with a bit of, um, you know, someone helping them with transport or, you know, it could be that their balance and flexibility is maybe not as good. So they go do some physio and, you know, they're able to compensate for that. So yes, there are some changes, but they're still independent and able to do all the things they want to do day to day. And then the third trajectory is what I've come to think of as compromised aging. And this is often when there is a separate condition. So, you know, a diagnosed sort of illness or disease or injury that is superimposed on sort of the natural aging process that compromises someone's health and affects their quality of life day to day. But I just want to say a little something here, which is that often when we think of compromised aging, you know, if you get a diagnosis of dementia or Parkinson's disease, or you have a major stroke, you know, that it's the idea that, okay, well, that's where, you know, there's an absence of quality of life. And I just want to say that that doesn't necessarily have to hold true. So this is where we can still spark meaning and joy. And, you know, it's amazing how people's will to live can become so unshakable and often shine even brighter in the face of some of these diagnoses. Mm. And I think of um, this Italian gentleman that I was working with. He had really quite a significant stroke um, and then following that developed sort of vascular dementia that progressed fairly rapidly. Um, And he moved into residential aged care because his family were no longer able to care for him at home and he really needed 24-7 care. They couldn't afford that professionally. So he moved into care, which it sounded like from his family was something he didn't want historically. But he moved in and we got a referral to our service because he was dismantling the fittings and fixtures at this nursing home. So he was pulling lights off walls. He was pulling ceiling fans down. He was upending furniture and they sort of, you know, help was basically (laughs) the call that we got. And when I went out there and I met with the family, what I learned is that this gentleman much earlier in his life um, had been a handyman. Oh, wow. Um, 
So what we ended up doing was the the residential aged care facility had like a garden, um, which wasn't particularly sort of, you know, well, well tended to. So in the warmer months, we would give him a tin of paint and a brush and he would repaint the back garden fence just continuously from start to finish. We gave him, you know, old pieces of furniture, you know, chairs where the leg had come loose and he would spend his days in the garden fixing furniture. His wife lived nearby. She'd come every day with sort of, you know, an Italian, you know, like antipasto lunch for him Mm. because he wasn't eating very much at the facility. And this was a game changer for this man, you know, even in the midst of, you know, this dementia and, and being, you know, really quite impaired in his thinking skills, he was still able to experience joy and a sense of identity and purpose and belonging. So, so I just want to say that, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, that, was a solution that, you know, a team of people came up with to incorporate into his life. And you actually write about where to go for help. And um, the subtitle on that, which I love, is It Takes a Village. And you talk about having a dream team to support people as they get older. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk to me about how important it is to have a dream team and who should be on that team. Oh, I'd, I'd love to speak to that. So I am... Um... I had a patient who I'll sort of nickname Earl and he was a South African gentleman who came to Australia. He was a GP and he was a GP with his whole heart. You know, he was someone who looked after families for decades, you know, helping tend to the elderly members while they were dying. Um, you know, very early on in his career back in South Africa, he would birth their children. Um, you know, he loved his work. And as he got older, he unfortunately became really unwell. So he had Parkinson's disease. He had congestive heart failure. He had um, quite significant diabetes that was hard to manage and, and a whole host of other things. 
And he was seeing the best doctors in every field because he was a GP. He knew mm. who to go and see. So he had all the ologists, you know, he had the cardiologists, the endocrinologists, the neurologists, all the ologists, all the best ologists. The problem was though, actually his care in terms of healthcare was not great. So he would frequently have medication interactions because one doctor would prescribe something and it would interact with what another doctor prescribed. And and he was actually developing a lot of side effects from the medications. He was getting conflicting advice. There was a lack of communication and shared decision-making. So Eventually, he found a GP, something he'd never needed before right. because he was one. Yeah. Um, but he found this GP who ended up being sort of the conductor of the symphony of his healthcare, mm. and it quite literally changed his life. You know, he was able to reduce the number of medications he was taking. He was using a walking stick. He could get rid of that. His balance and mobility improved. His tremor reduced. He was sleeping better. So when I think of a dream team, I really think of, you know, I once heard a, a football club, you know, they said it's a team of superstar players, not a superstar team. So I guess the, the first member of a dream team in terms of care is a, a really good GP. Mm. Um, and in the book, you'll find like a, what I call like a GP interview checklist. It's just got some questions and ideas of how to find the right GP. You for have you so or... many checklists in that book, oh. which I love. <laughs> I love that because it's very simple and clear what you need to be asking each specific person and, you know, specific ologist and it's great. <laughs> oh, thank you. I just, you know, I just think families, when you're in the thick of this, it's just, you just need someone to give you some really clear guidance. Mm. That was sort of my, my intention there. But, you know, if you find your GP, some of the other key members, you know, could be a geriatrician. So a lot of people don't know what a geriatrician is. It's basically a medical doctor who specializes in older people. And what I love about a geriatrician is they don't focus on a specific disease or body part or organ, or they actually focus just on on conditions and, you know, medications and diagnoses that are really prevalent in later life. So they can adopt a really holistic perspective and Mm. see an older person as a whole person. And they can work closely with the GP to to coordinate, you know, all of the advice from all the ologists. It's amazing Um, because I'd never heard of one before, but it makes so much sense to have a geriatrician. 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 The the way that I sort of explain it really simply is it's a pediatrician, but for the other (laughs) end end of your life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But it, Mm. it does. It makes so much sense because your needs and priorities and you know, and and they look at things through a different lens. So they know how medications need to be, the dose needs to be modified at certain points in later life or what interactions might occur. And so I I think it's great to see a geriatrician and and I'll loop back and just say maybe how people can access them briefly Mm. um, Mm. at the end, but just a couple of other sort of key players on a dream team. One would be your mum, Jane, yes. so a yeah. palliative care physician or nurse. And people think palliative care is just something you have at the very end of your life in those last few weeks. 
um, or even days. But, you know, the scope of palliative care has really broadened and actually they help anyone living with what they call sort of a terminal condition to have better symptom management and better quality of life. Mm. So Earl, my um, South African client who had Parkinson's disease, he was under palliative care actually for years Mm. and they were really helpful in managing, you know, symptoms and pain and yeah, he he was a huge advocate of them. Mm. My mother was actually working for a volunteer group where once someone had the diagnosis before they got their dream team in place, there's a period of time while that's happening and she would go along and, you know, other nurses like her would go along and sit there and talk to them, you know, so it was about the mental health in that period of time as well. Yeah. So important because sometimes you're given this big diagnosis and it's almost like goodbye and good luck until you sort of reach your next crisis mm. point. And, you know, that's that's huge for families. So it's a beautiful service that, that your mum offered mm. and goes to speak to the idea that palliative care, you know, is not just for the end. No, that's um, right. And I'd never considered that. There's a lot I'd never considered until I read your book. This is why people <laughs> grab a copy. <laughs> so who else is on the dream you. team? Yeah. <laughs> so and, and I think I think the last one I want to mention, I mean everybody's dream team looks a bit different because of mm. course based on your sort of, you know, medical conditions, your needs. But one of the key players that I really, if you can access one and we'll talk about how to, that you um, can be so valuable is a social worker because navigating the aged care services and supports. I mean, I was astounded before I worked really closely with a social worker, very closely. We, our desks were next to each other. I was astounded by how much is available for families, but how difficult it is to find out about them in terms of government funding programs and community services and aged care services and supports. There is an enormous amount out there, but it is like a maze. It it can feel like trying to navigate a maze. And I see a social worker as just your guide. They have done this so many times before. They get it. They know what's available and they can help you sort of navigate all of those services and forms and, you know, planning considerations. And there are so many things here that, you know, most people would never have considered. I've certainly never considered and now I'm going, okay, all right. So you can start to sort of plan and I've never considered myself getting older, really. I mean, you know, you do every day, of course you do. But, you know, for me, embracing getting older is like looking in the mirror and not wanting to get Botox. I've never considered these things, you know, and how it impacts my children. And And, and in fairness to you, Jane, I think most people don't. Mm. Um, My family didn't. And and had I not chosen this career, I wouldn't. Um, What do you think is a good age to start considering some of these things, these, you know, asking questions in families and being clear about what you want? Is Is it more of a where your health is at my intuition here and and I'll I'll get into the detail a bit I always say it's never too early it's never too late so just as one example I mean as I mentioned I'm in my mid-30s and I have conversations with my husband we have um, a young daughter about what I would want to happen if you know I was suddenly um, injured or ill and he needed to make decisions on my behalf and so on the one hand, you say it's not too early. I think realistically, though, um, I don't expect all families to be having those conversations that early. I think 
when you're, if I had to give just a broad age range, I think when someone is in their sort of maybe late sixties, heading into their seventies, that's Mm. often a really nice time to have these conversations because often there are some natural life transitions that occur around that point. People maybe start thinking about retirement. People maybe start thinking about whether they want to downsize or change their accommodation. And it also gives you quite a nice runway in terms of having time up your sleeve um, Mm. to prepare for things before possibly illness or changes in health necessarily strike. I think also though, it's never too late. So Mm. I've also had families. I remember one family, um, their mum was at, you know, very end stage dementia and was sort of, I would say actively dying would be how I would think of, um, you know, she was sort of in the last days of her life. And at that time we sat the family down and had a conversation about, you know, these are the options for end of life care. What do you think would be most consistent with mum's wishes? And there were a lot of tears and they hadn't necessarily had this conversation before, but we were able to come up with a beautiful plan. And in those final days of their mum's life, that family was able to experience such a sense of unity and comfort for having mm. had that conversation. So it's never too early. It's never too late. But I, I think that really the earlier, the better. I think you'd rather be a bit early and then sort of be sitting there waiting for well, all I of these the, things. The to take earlier effect. that you have this conversation, as you say, it means that your aging parent or loved one is a part of the conversation rather than having to have that really painful conversation, you know, with health professionals and making the decisions for them. For anyone who's listening to this, and obviously I want people to go out and buy this book because I think it's one that needs to be on the shelf of every family. It covers everything from medical considerations to practical to emotional ones. Uh, But for anyone who's listening, what would one apart from go and buy my book, <laughs> what's, a, what's the one piece of advice you would give today? I think that if for anyone with an aging loved one, my biggest piece of advice is step into their world. And that's at any stage. So if you're starting to notice that maybe something's not quite right in mum or dad, and you're thinking about approaching them and having that conversation you know, try to step into their world. How might that conversation feel for them? You know, what potential vulnerabilities might that touch on? You know, what, how might they um, interpret that? How might they best want you to approach them? You know, step into their world. If it's a loved one like my Zeta who has dementia, one of the biggest struggles we had is when my mom she craved that shared memory and that shared reality. So when my Zeta would say something that was really, it was, you know, not necessarily true or consistent with reality, my mum would so desperately try to convince him of reality and bring him back into our world. And it just led to so much frustration and angst and sadness on both parts. And it didn't achieve that goal of a shared reality. So I said to her mum, step into his world. You know, if he thinks that, you know, he's at the airport waiting to catch a flight, be in that airport with him, you know, tell him that the plane's running late. So you'll go get a cup of tea in the kitchen and he'll quickly move on. Or, you know, when he used to get so upset with me because he thought that I didn't invite him to my wedding, knowing that the invitation was on the fridge. You know, I didn't argue with that. I didn't. So, and even 
you know, towards the very end of life, you know, stepping into their world. Sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a concept that I think of called dignity of risk. And sometimes when we think about making plans or helping our mom, dad, or aging loved one make decisions for their sort of aging journey, we often think about, you know, what would I want? And it comes from a good place, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. So, you know, what would I want or what would be best for mum or dad? I think a better question though is what would they want? Step into their world, think about their long-standing preferences, wishes, values. What would they want? And sometimes that's not always consistent with their best wishes, um, sorry, with their best interests. Um, mm. And this is the idea of, you know, dignity of risk that I think of William Ernest Henley. He wrote a poem called Invictus. And the final lines of that poem are, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Mm. And I've sat in really intimate conversations with over a thousand families and older people And Jane, they come from all walks of life. I mean, you can imagine being at St. Vincent's, you know, we see such an array of people, but every single one of them, if you really get down to what they want for their future, it is to remain the captains of their souls. They want that that fundamental human right to self-determination and autonomy. And that is what we can do as family members is to empower them to make those plans. And even if they develop a condition that might sort of compromise that decision-making capacity to still support them to make decisions that are consistent with their wishes um, and allow them to take certain risks. Um, Oh, Melissa, I want you on my dream team. (laughs) (laughs) With pleasure. It's really, really beautiful and very moving and treating people with dignity at the end of their lives is just so important. The book is We Need to Talk About Aging. It's the perfect title for this book because we really do need to have these conversations. Melissa Levi, thanks for having this conversation with me today. Jane, thank you so much for having me. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.